This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest, If Bono Were a Chess Piece Edition. It's Wednesday, September 24th, 2014. On today's show, the rockasaurs known as U2, we discuss a big and equivocal legacy with Slate's own Carl Wilson. And then one of the most emotional, dramatic, newsworthy chess events of the past 40 years just happened in St. Louis. There were 300 people on hand to see it. One of them, lucky us, was Slate's own Seth Stevenson. And finally, a TV columnist sets out to explode a stereotype and instead reinforces it. We talk about Shonda Rhimes, the angry black woman, and the perils of talking about race with Slate's own Willa Paskin. Joining me today is Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia. Hi, Steve. And Julia, we can immediately explain why we have this uh, lineup of... uh, of pinch hitters, it's because Dana's not in this week, and it takes uh, it takes a three-headed monster to replace uh, her. It's true, it's true. But we have we have a good lineup here. Yeah, we have a great lineup. Before we dig in, we do have an announcement about the upcoming LA live show. But what do we have? Yeah, Steve. So we've got our very exciting Los Angeles live show coming up on Wednesday, October 8th. We're going to be performing live downtown at the Belasco Theater. And we'll have some special guests, including John August and Craig Mazin of the Great Script Notes podcast. We also have a deal for ticket purchasers. They'll get a free drink ticket included with their price of admission. And we're also trying to work out something where Steve can share his beloved local pie with you, the people of Los Angeles. I don't think we're going to be able to bring unlimited pie, but we're trying to bring some select upstate New York finest pies uh, to share with a few of you that night. So again, great guests, great gabbing, hopefully some pie, free drinks. Uh, doors are at 7, and tickets are available at sleep.com slash LA Culture Fest. And then we also have a live show coming up on October 20th in Boston, my hometown. And that should be a super fun night at sleep.com slash Boston Culture. There are still a few tickets left there. That's at the Wilbur Theater in Boston. We look forward to seeing you guys uh, in those fine cities. All right, Steve, what's next? All righty, moving on. U2's new album, Songs of Innocence, has been added automatically to 500 million iTunes libraries. This has raised ire as well as basic issues of consent, but it also has pointed up an intriguing parallel. First, U2 and Apple are exactly the same age. I hadn't really ever thought about this, but both were formed in 1976. And not only are they the same age, in some ways they're exactly the same thing. They're products of young, piratical idealists with a cynical streak Or is it young cynics with an idealistic streak? It's often very hard to tell. Together, they have reached late middle age. 
for a tech company, middle age means acting like a startup when in fact you're a monopoly. And for a rock band, it means struggling with each passing record to look and sound like your previous self, even as you turn first into your own imitators and finally into karaoke night. For both Apple and U2, ubiquity flirts dangerously with irrelevance. I kid because I love, and I do love, I actually do love U2. I love especially their first two iterations, the band that made Boy and War, and then their second iteration is a kind of classic rock behemoth uh, with Joshua Tree. We are now joined by Slate's own Carl Wilson to talk about the huge, uh, somewhat omnipresent, but perhaps dissipating legacy of the rock band U2. Carl Wilson, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Steve. I, have I crushed you under the verbiage <laughs> yet? <laughs> no, I, was, I, was, I, felt, I felt like you'd presented a complete thesis there that we could just maybe move on (laughs) (laughs) we can absolutely move on from it right away stipulated and done (laughs) (laughs) i I got carried away by the parallel which i'd never noticed before and uh, then pleased myself to no end with it but now it's your opportunity to um please me and our listeners carl what uh where do you i don't know that have i ever read you on youtube i don't know that i have what do you what do you make of them in their career yeah, I mean, the reason that you've never read me on YouTube is that I've sort of scrupulously avoided writing about them for the past 20 years. I did write about this album, but that's actually the first time that I've reviewed a YouTube album that I can recall. And it's basically because, you know, I, I enjoyed YouTube's first iteration, the sort of pre-Joshua Tree, upstart, angry young band out of Dublin, and the, you know, climbing a flagpole or whatever it was at Live Aid and all of that kind of nonsense and and it had a kind of amazing refreshingness about it at the time although even then there were other sort of post echo and the bunny man bands that i appreciated more but pretty much as soon as the joshua tree period came along they started to get acquire a kind of grandiosity and um a sort of self-satisfaction that i always found off-putting and Really, in the past 10 years or so, I've always been surprised whenever anybody tells me that they're a U2 fan, and especially, you know, other critics that I respect have told me that they're, you know, ultimately their favorite band, even though they get disappointed by them a lot, and, you know, that they appreciate the spirituality and the, the sort of searchingness of the music. And I can see all of those things, but I don't feel them. I essentially feel that U2, most of the time, strikes me as exactly the argument for why stadium rock became extinct and became irrelevant. You know, it's that, that sense of the history just sort of folding on top of itself and never yeah. and, and never being able to really reach outside and, and touch other things in, in an effective way. That's so interesting, Carl. And, and in fact, I was surprised, I think, by your recent review of the new album, which was beamed into all of our brains by Apple a couple weeks ago, or at least showed up automatically and for free in all of our iTunes accounts. You liked it a little bit better than some of their recent work. Can you explain why? Yeah, I think, you know, the title Songs of Innocence is um, an indication that what they're doing is reaching back to their youth and to, and particularly to Bono's youth. It's in some ways sometimes feels a bit like a Bono solo album because the songs are really centered around early events in his life in Dublin and, and the beginnings of the band. And I think maybe because I have an affection for those early albums, it evokes a period of the band that I find less irritating. And it also just seemed personal in a way that, that I appreciated. You know, a lot, of the, a lot of the songs are about their early punk influences. There's a song dedicated to Joey Ramone. There's a song about the first time that all of them went to see The Clash together. So those things, and they, they draw a bit on the sound of that period in those songs. You know, they still U2-ize it, so they're not really punk rock songs, but they still have a bit of that energy. 
And then other songs are really about family and childhood and early love and all those kinds of things. So I think that move, you know, which is one of the moves that's available as Steve was talking about what what does a middle-aged rock band do? And one of the things that you can do is is that kind of flashback to when you were young and and comparatively innocent. And I felt that that kind of worked and it kind of counteracted a lot of that grandiosity that I that I am uncomfortable with with you two. And I think maybe I also feel a certain amount of sympathy or affection for the impossible position that U2 is in now when the kind of music they make has no relationship whatsoever to what's going on in pop music in general. And, you know, even even their most blatantly influenced acts have moved on to other kinds of things, and U2 inevitably ends up sounding a bit like it's, you know, sort of a footnote to a footnote at this point. And that kind of, despite the incredibly obnoxious way that the album was distributed, it still felt to me like a little bit of a, a kind of underdog feel to this record. Right. It's it's the underdog overdog um, move, which which can either work or seem horribly smarmy and insidious, I think, depending on how it strikes you. All right. Well, before we go any further, why don't we listen to a cut from the new album? All right, well, by way of contrast, why don't we listen to a song from their first record? It's the first cut off of their first album, a pretty pretty fucking auspicious way to introduce yourself to the world, the song I Will Follow. Carl, what's uh, another thing that's always interested me about you two, and I think is kind of half forgotten about them, is that in transitioning from the little band that could to you know international superstars, uh, Brian Eno played a huge, a pivotal role uh, producing some of the albums in which they started to become anthemic. Our classic Brian Eno produced records. Uh, talk a little bit about that, and then also about where they're go, what direction they're going uh, in now, vis-a-vis production and producers. Yeah, you know, I mean, producers have always been kind of central to U2's story. You know, early on, they were working with Steve Lillywhite, who was sort of classic, classic rock, really, UK producer. And then in their attempt to reinvent themselves, they moved on to Daniel Lemoyne, particularly, and Brian Eno, both of whom kind of helped facilitate their reinvention of themselves sonically and, and in some ways making things bigger, but also helping them kind of experiment when they wanted to experiment. And they've kind of stuck with that, Formerly, often on the albums that they've done in the past 10 years, none of which really sort of landed with a big impact. And so with this album, they actually 
jumped around a lot and tried things with a lot of different producers, and they ended up working mainly. They Ryan Tedder from One Republic is is on a couple of the tracks as a as a co writer and producer, and those songs have a little bit more of a kind of pop shape to them and are you know kind of move directly from A to B in the way that we don't think of U two songs as doing. But the most interesting thing is they worked with Brian Burton, Danger Mouse. And he kind of presides over the whole last half of the album, and that part of the album really becomes interesting. There's a lot of space in those songs in ways that we're not used to with U2, and, and you get to hear kind of bass textures, and there's some space around Bono's voice in all of those songs in a way that's a lot more evocative and, and really is kind of what makes the album as listenable as it is to me. And it's interesting that they are, they've moved to sort of work with people who are right in the stream of what's happening in pop now and this there's this kind of humility to that that i like and trying to sort of meet the next generation halfway in a way that they weren't doing when they were sort of carrying on with the lanois you know um formula in previous albums one reason i'm excited to talk about you two with you carl is that my personal experience as a listener and or non-listener of you two makes me think a lot of your book about Celine Dion and about taste because I all of my musical taste in high school was shaped by my influential record-buying friends who wanted to listen to everything on Sub Pop and Matador and thought that you two were you know horrible musical overlords and completely hopelessly uncool and so I just absorbed that you two were like terrible and lame unquestioningly as the <laughs> as the little musical follower that I was all through high school and then in college I discovered the early albums and listened to the songs on war and was like what this band is great this this music is so fun um and the sheer scale the volume that they can conjure with their sound both in those early rougher albums but even with the anthemic stuff that comes later even with the Joshua Tree stuff or even that early aughts album I forget what it was called I even have a fondness for those songs like a, the the sheer competence with which they can make that epic sounding music sometimes that's what you're in the mood for I don't listen to them that much but I think in rebelling against my teen self I I sort of have that underdog overdog fondness for you too in my listenership. Yeah, it's funny, you know, that you mentioned the book because this morning I was thinking jokingly to myself that that if it would have made any sense to anyone, I felt like I could have written that book about you too. <laughs> because you two really did have that terminal uncoolness to me in the 90s. And, you know, I think I was in the same camp as the people who were influencing you. And I think you two struggled with that all through the 90s as well. There were a lot of attempts to reinvent themselves, you know, with the pop album and with Zeropa, and those things generally ended up being mocked as well. But when you listen back to them, they actually, you know, they're they're convincing a little bit at at changing their sound up and, and being more playful than the, than the sort of right-down-the-middle epic U2 thing. The epic U2 thing for me, I think, is always that it feels like the sum of the parts is is lesser that you know there's a lot going on that's being beautifully done but it feels kind of empty at the core and i think if i could switch off my desire to get the meaning out of it that they're sort of thrusting at you that this is the level of meaning the fullness of it and just enjoy the you know masterfulness of of the edges guitar in particular and just the the way that those things are constructed i would be able to enjoy them more but i i always just feel like somebody's sort of stomping down on a 
YouTube labeled effects pedal and just trying to <laughs> slam YouTuness into my head. And like, and I think any time that they don't seem like they're doing that, I enjoy it a lot more. Right. Yeah, I, I, I want to step in very quickly and make a case for them. And by doing that, put them on a bit of a timeline. I mean, you have to understand that by 1990, they'd been a band for 14 years. They'd been a recording band and touring band for 12 or more. Uh, you know, they made... I think the very first record came out in Carl, if I'm not mistaken, 1979. So they were in their early days. They were really contemporary more with the Smiths and R.E.M. Uh, than they were, you know, even though we now group them in our heads with, I mean, who knows what from the 90s or maybe even Coldplay from the aughts. And they also started when they were incredibly young. I think the over-earnestness and the reachingness of the early records was completely appropriate to a, the age of the band when they were making the music, and B, the state of music at the time. And then the problem is rock and roll has just attenuated and attenuated and attenuated as a cultural presence and influence as they've inflated and inflated and inflated. And I think these things are are more than just correlated. I think that there's a causality there as well, Carl. I'd be interested to hear what you say, that somehow the burden of keeping up an entire genre really has resulted in an unfortunate uh, self-importance. You're, you're conjuring in my mind a very strange metaphor, which is of a person simultaneously becoming a giant and shrinking at the same time, that as their, <laughs> as their cultural significance diminishes, they're like dwindling to little teeny figurines on a countertop while they puff themselves up and up and up and up. And there is a sense of that a little bit in the music, which again, I think you can either find charming, like the teeny little figurine bellowing up at you, or just pathetic. Yeah, and I think that, you know, it's almost, a, it's almost a relativistic model, right? You know, the question, you know, we perceive you 2 as this kind of bloated gas balloon that continues to inflate and inflate. And in some ways, the relevance to the actual state of rock and roll, as Steve was referring to, you know, maybe it's just that the field is getting smaller and smaller. And so they look more and more bloated, whereas actually sort of staying the same. And again, I think that they've wrestled with that themselves all the way along. You're right. And like, we kind of meet them in almost in mid-career in some ways and so to expect them to have this freshness as if that band had just started a few years before was in fact you know it's always shocking to remember that it started in the mid-late 70s they don't behave the way that a band that just formed a couple of years ago would you know even at that point when they're trying to refix their sound they're almost more in the position of you know David Bowie in the late 70s than, than they are in the position of, you know, the Strokes trying to put out a second album. Mm. Carl, I think that's exactly right. I, had, I have to jump in and just say quickly, you know, Julia, you put beautifully the way that I've tried over and over again to capture the predicament of uh, academia and the humanities. You have something that externally to the rest of the world is getting smaller and smaller. Its importance is diminishing. And therefore, the peacocking uh, that goes on within it gets more and more outrageous, but that was beautifully put. Anyway, Carl, as always, it is a huge pleasure to have you on uh, uh, talking about this kind of stuff, and um, and welcome back to Slate. It's great to have you as a, an in-house critic. Thanks very much. It's always a pleasure. Steve, we've just talked about you two for like 12 minutes, and you've not yet done your Bono impersonation. <laughs> Are you? Will you share it with our listeners? Will you Bono? If they... If, you come to the Los Angeles live show. <laughs> I will take a microphone, and if there is one, a standard tuned guitar, <laughs> no capo, and I will sing the song one on one knee to 
Dana and Julia. <laughs> All right. That's an enticement, I think. <laughs> I, I, I will take that deal. All right. Moving on. Grandmaster Clash, one of the most amazing feats in chess history just happened and no one noticed, is a piece by Slate contributor Seth Stevenson. And I have to admit, midway through reading it, I emailed Julia Turner to say it was both masterful and a box of rhetorical candy. We're joined by the eminently man-crush-worthy Seth Stevenson to talk about it. Seth, this is a terrific piece of writing. I'm a huge fan of your work, but this uh, you surpassed even yourself with this. Oh, thank you, Steve. You're my man-crush. Uh, well, okay. We I can just get out of the segment if you guys want. <laughs> Please leave us to ourselves. <laughs> it's quickly become, become unseemly. Um, but listen, I learned so much from the piece, I don't know exactly where to start. So let me, let me lay out some issues and you can pick where to begin. The first is why St. Louis? I'm interested, I was interested to discover that it's in a way a mecca for chess. Who is Magnus Carlsen, an incredible character, the possibly even more incredible character of Fabiana Caruana? And then what went down in St. Louis between them and what was the historical context for it? It's an amazing story. So kind of begin anywhere. How'd you get interested in this and what led you to St. Louis? Well, what happened is we were offered a day with Magnus Carlsen, who's the world number one chess champion and one of the best chess players ever, and also a somewhat compelling personality. He's this handsome Norwegian guy. He's about 23 or 24. So we were, I was, Slate was offered a day with Magnus in St. Louis. And so uh, our sports editor, Josh Levine, sent me out there. But it turned out that Magnus wouldn't talk to me when I got out there because he was facing all of these distractions that are going on in the chess world. He's trying to nail down uh, his next world championship bout, um, and he's in a dispute with FIDE, the Fédération Internationale des Echecs, which is the international governing body of chess. And because of that dispute and all the confusion over nailing down his next title fight, Magnus was distracted, and he didn't want any further distractions, such as a Slate reporter buzzing all around him. So he decided not to talk to me to focus on the tournament, which is this tournament in St. Louis. And to answer one of your many other questions, the reason why it's in St. Louis is because of a plutocrat named Rex Sinkfield, who grew up an orphan in St. Louis, went on to invent the passively indexed market-weighted S&P 500 fund and made tons and tons of money, retired back to St. Louis, and now has created a chess mecca there. He, he's created the St. Louis Chess Club, which is a 6,000-square-foot chess club. Um, he put the World Chess Hall of Fame across the street. Uh, I believe he is uh, involved in fund Webster University's chess team, which is the Division One NCAA champion chess team since 2012. They have not relinquished that title. Um, and so it's St. Louis has become the heart of American chess, mostly because of Rex Sinkfield, this one multi-multi-multi-millionaire uh, who really likes chess. Um, mm-hmm. Put into a little bit of context where chess is now vis-a-vis the public imagination, because of course it hits these various high watermarks over the decades with Fisher Spassky, I mean, Fisher being, Bobby Fisher being one of the greatest, if not the greatest chess player of all time, but also the first American uh, world champion. You have, uh, you know, Russian chess grandmasters losing for the first time to Big Blue, the IBM computer. Chess re-enters the public consciousness, but when it disappears, it really disappears. You were one of only, what, a couple of hundred, 300 people there to witness what was really uh, chess history unfolding. Yeah, and the only mainstream non-chess journalist there, despite the fact that there was this building thing happening with Fabiano Caruana, this guy was winning and winning and winning and becoming a big story, and yet no one was going out there to pay attention to it. Uh, okay, well, let's get to him. So what he accomplished out in St. Louis was truly incredible. 
Um, yeah, so he went. He won his first seven games in a row in this tournament of which. And Seth, let me interrupt you quickly. Sorry. Tell tell us quickly who he is, where he's from, how old he is, and what it was like to be around him. Fabiano Caruana was born in Miami, moved to Brooklyn when he was four, learned to play chess at a synagogue in Park Slope, Brooklyn, and then relocated to Europe at age 12 to focus on chess because that's where all the top level chess teachers and chess tournaments are, and it's easier to be a professional chess person there. Um, he's now 22. When he, when he entered the Sinkfield Cup, he was number three in the world. He went on to win his first seven games of the Sinkfield Cup. Now, this is the toughest, highest-level competition in a chess tournament in at least 20 years, maybe ever. Um, it's all top 10 grandmasters, and it's very hard to just flat-out whoop a grandmaster. Usually, they can engineer a draw if they want to. Um, there's lots of draws in chess, especially at the highest levels against these evenly matched guys. But he straight-out won, and he didn't just win. He was Stomping them. I mean, he was he was spanking them in the words of one of the chess commentators there. And these were in games where very often he was black. And what is what difference does that make? Yeah. So white goes first, and that gives you an advantage because that means you get to dictate the early uh, stages of play because black is reacting to you. So every move counts in high level chess. You can. It's not like oh, I'll just I'll just throw in a move here for no reason. Every move counts. So if you get to go first, they have to react to everything you do. And Caruana. Uh, was was often winning with black. In fact, he beat Magnus Carlsen, world number one, world champion, uh, using the black pieces. And that was in his third game, and that's when people started to really pay attention. He went on to win his next four games to go 7-0, and and then he drew his left, finally, in his eighth game, Magnus Carlsen, playing with black, engineered a draw, and was able to slow down Fabiano Caruana. But Caruana went on to draw his final three games in the tournament to go 7-0 and 3. He was undefeated. Not a single one of these top-level grandmasters could pin a loss on him and he's now world number two and he is biting at the heels of Magnus Carlsen. And there were some great lines in your piece trying to put in context for us non-chess fans what it means to win seven games in a row. Like, what are the analogous accomplishments in other sports? Some of this sounded like maybe hyperbole, but... but There was probably some hyperbole. I mean, in terms of comparing it to other chess feats, people were going back to 1994 when Anatoly Karpov had this amazing 6-0 run to start a tournament in Linares. Uh, They were going back to 1968 when Viktor Korchnoi, you know, had a great tournament in the Netherlands. Um, In terms of non-chess, for the chess layman, um, what you could compare it to, one of the commentators there said it was like throwing 100 innings of no-hit baseball. I think that is definitely hyperbole. <laughs> but in the same way that throwing 100 innings of no-hit baseball is completely unprecedented, going you know undefeated in a tournament with this level of players with, without a single loss is pretty much unprecedented. Um, and the other thing that the commentators would talk about when talking about Fabiano Carano was Bobby Fischer. And Bobby Fischer is this legendary American chess player who's still the only ever American world champion of chess, um, who won in 1972 against Boris Spassky in this legendary series of games um, that were telling televised in the U.S. live. So uh, Fisher was was this incendiary chess player who won 20 games in a row against grandmasters and just had these amazing leaps of logic. And was, uh, you know, if you understand chess, which I barely do, but uh, the people who understand it talk about Bobby Fischer. Um, he's just got these mind-blowing moves that no one would think of in his day. And that's who they were comparing Fabiano Caruana to. Hmm. It's interesting, Seth, that that chess players, I mean, especially to non-chess players, it's fascinating that they have highly distinctive, highly personalized styles that fit in with their whole way of strategic, not only their strategic way of looking at the game, but seem to to express some, you know, inner 
uh, disposition towards the game and life. I mean, it's like a, it's so distinctive to the player uh, to play in that particular way. Can you contrast the styles of uh, Carlson and uh, Caruana? Sure. So Carlson, the world champ, is known for just kind of getting into the game without uh, a lot of thought. Uh, one of the commentators compared it to just sort of lobbing in your first serve underhand to start a tennis point. He just wants to get into the game, and he has so much faith and confidence in his skills that he figures whatever position he ends up in, he can then go to work, find an advantage, and then just squeeze every drop out of that advantage. That's his. He's known for being this very patient sort of boa constrictor player who will he'll find just a teensy positional advantage, and then he won't let it go. And over the mm-hmm. and he's very patient, and he'll spend two or three hours hours to work that advantage into something that he can really use, whereas another player might say, oh, there might be something here, but geez, I can't face three hours of my brain hurting this much. I can't do this. Uh, Carlson will do that. Caruana, on the other hand, is developing a reputation as the best prepared grandmaster in chess. He's a guy who looks at every single chess game that's of any importance every day. They all get posted to the internet. And he told me, uh, when I interviewed him, he told me about how he looks every day at what the new chess games are, what the new moves are, where there's something he can use against a specific opponent. He goes back and sort of like uh, an NFL coach, he looks at the past games of his, of his opponents to see if he can spot something there that might be a vulnerability that he can use against them, or if they haven't faced a certain kind of opening in a long time, or if they did badly against a certain kind of opening. So he just is super prepared. He's never going to let anyone out work him and that really shined in this tournament where um, you know there was one one example where Caruana came against came up against a player uh, this French player uh, who uh, sort of unveiled a surprise uh, defense of the opening, something he's not known for, something atypical. Uh, but Caruana had studied this line of attack four months ago in preparation for a different opponent, and he was able to retrieve the 17 moves he needed to combat it uh, and then make small adjustments as, as, as his opponent made small adjustments in the midst of all this. And people were just wowed by that. They couldn't believe his, his preparation, the fact that he has all these things in his Rolodex that he can just pull out and then execute them all, which is which is also hard. It's difficult to actually then retrieve the series of moves you need and execute them in sequence without a single flub. I'm curious to hear your thoughts after digging into this world for writing this piece on why chess held such appeal in the United States in the 70s and 80s and why why there were only 300 people there today. You know, the game hasn't changed. The game has been the same for ages why why was it just nationalism was it just fighting the russians and fighting the computers did it not matter what we were using to fight them with and that's why it captured the attention or is there something about our age that has made us less able to appreciate the glories of chess? Not having been sentient in the early and mid-70s, I can't exactly say what the feeling was, but I think the Cold War played a huge role. I think the fact that there had, you know, since 1948, it had been entirely Soviet uh, chess champions. And here was Bobby Fischer, an American, challenging them, an underdog. And it was very exciting. And people got behind it and rallied. And it was hugely exciting in the same way that the 1980 U.S. Olympic hockey team's victory over the Russian team was this big deal that I I don't fully understand why it was such a big deal, uh, having been only six years old at that time. But I think during that that Cold War mood, it was huge when an American could topple a, a Soviet at, at their own game. Um, so I think that was a big part of it. I think Fisher also was a very compelling personality. He was a weirdo. He's this very live wire personality, very eccentric. And I think that was exciting to people. You know, there was also you could argue that, you know, people have made arguments about how we used to be a higher brow culture, how we used to how we used to value sort of the higher, we, you know, we had like Pablo Casals on the cover of Time um, and Bobby Fischer was on the cover of Time. And nowadays we're, we're not that kind of culture anymore. We don't value that kind of stuff in the same way. Um, 
I would say, you know, some people point to the rise of computer chess. Um, you know, the fact that if you want to watch the highest level of chess being played in the world right now, you would watch two CPUs playing each other. And that's not hugely exciting. But, but by the same token, why do you watch Usain Bolt sprint when you could watch two race cars or, you know, or two jet fighter planes go race against each other? Um, so there's that element. You know, I think the big reason chess has trouble being popular is that it's hard. <laughs> it's really <laughs> hard to understand. If you want to understand it and just be able to watch these games and strategize along with the players and understand what's going on, you need to put in a lot of study to figure out how these openings work and why you want a bishop here instead of there and why this pawn is so important to protect. And, you know, it's, it's hard to do that. It's, it's easier to watch a game um, like basketball or even poker, which is another mind sport, um, which are easier to understand and easier to quickly figure out like, oh, I get why he's doing that. I see that. Well, another way for people to get quickly into chess is to read Seth's piece, which is amazing and brings the uh, human drama uh, of this otherwise somewhat maybe possibly remote sport to life. It is a terrific piece of writing. It's called Grandmaster Clash, uh, and it's up on Slate now. Seth Stevenson, Slate contributor. Thank you so much for coming on the program. It's a terrific piece, and it was, as always, very fun to talk to you. Thanks, guys. All righty, moving on. Alessandra Stanley is the TV critic for The New York Times, and she's just published an essay that begins with the sentence, when Shonda Rhimes writes her autobiography, it should be called How to Get Away with Being an Angry Black Woman. Stanley goes on to describe Rhimes, who's the creator of Grey's Anatomy and Scandal and the EP of a forthcoming show called How to Get Away with Murder, as a singularly powerful figure in television that has, quote, embraced the trite but persistent caricature of the angry black woman, recasted in her own image, and made it enviable, single-handedly trampling a taboo even Michelle Obama couldn't break, upon which Slate's TV critic Willa Paskin cries bullshit. With compliments like these, Willa writes, who needs insults? Rhymes is no more that, quote, angry black woman than her own characters who are angry the way that a bird is bipedal. It's not false, but it's not to the point. Willa, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, Willa, I have to admit something, and I'm very curious to hear your reaction to it, which is when I first read Alessandra Stanley's essay, it didn't, I mean, I'm a pompous white male, so this is perhaps to be expected, but it did not push any of my hot buttons, though by the time I got to the end of your takedown of it, I was fully convinced of your position. Talk a little bit about what what set you off in her essay. She's a terrific TV critic and has been for a long time. How did she step in it like this? Well, I think part of the thing to understand about the piece is it was intended as a compliment. So you just read the piece and you don't know that much about Shonda Rhimes or her TV shows. It's framed extremely positively. Alessandra Stanley was not trying to insult Shonda Rhimes. She was sort of trying to burnish her. But I think that there's a lot of misunderstandings, you know, about Shonda Rhimes' TV shows and also herself. And one of them is, you know, that she is an angry black woman, which is a sort of really intense thing to say about a person that Alessandra Stanley, you know, doesn't really know and that has not in her sort of public persona ever particularly come across as angry. Um, you know, she I've met Sean Rhimes. I wrote a profile of her for The New York Times, actually, for the magazine. And, you know, she is an intimidating and serious person, but she's not angry. I mean, nothing about her persona is that in particular. And I think that throughout the piece, and I sort of said this in my response, I think there's a real elision of the thing that is interesting about Shonda Rhimes' African-American characters in particular. And, and you know, obviously Shonda Rhimes is doing something interesting with African-American women between what she is actually doing and sort of what Alessandra Stanley compliments her in this kind of belittling way. With doing, um, you know, which is mm-hmm. I don't actually think that those characters are angry and I don't think that sort of her project has been to rescue this stereotype. 
you know, her project has kind of been to totally expand what we expect black women to be able to do on television, including, most importantly, have television shows. Mm -hmm. We'll talk a little bit about specifically about how, as a show creator and runner, EP and writer, she's done this with these characters. I think one of the things about Shonda Rhimes is that if you watched early Grey's, and I've seen all of Grey's, it's like the only show I still watch because I just love it <laughs> without, without my higher faculties. It always was very diverse. That was sort of the thing about it from the very beginning. There was an Asian car- doctor. There was an African-American doctor. You know, th- there was many African-American doctors. There's all these white people running around. It was a very diverse. Everyone was sleeping with each other. They sort of didn't talk about race ever. It was almost like... It was idyllic, basically. It was all of these people, and there was no conflict about that. She sort of had... Uh, was famous for doing race-blind casting. She just cast whoever was best for the part. She didn't have an idea of who they were going to be when they came in, which is how Christina Yang ended up being Jewish. And, like, everyone sort of got along or didn't get along, but it didn't have anything to do with that. And I think when you when she started Scandal, which is um, about an African-American woman who is having an affair with the white president of the United States, who is a Republican, and maybe, like, the craziest twist of that whole crazy show... She didn't talk about race very much, and there was a number of pieces. Uh, Emily Nussbaum wrote one um, at the time that was sort of like, this is race-blind to the point of kind of absurdity. Like, how could you have a president having an affair with a black woman and have that not be really, you know, manifest, like the text, that, like what everyone is talking about, you know, what his staffers are saying to him. And I think... You know, Shonda Rhimes has talked about this and sort of has been like, white people expect black people to constantly be talking about yada yada, like, this is what it means to be black, and that's ridiculous. But I think that there has also clearly been a progression in the show, especially in Scandal, in her sort of addressing her black audience and sort of the blackness of the characters. There, You know, in the second season, Olivia gives a speech, like, I'm feeling a little Sally Hemings-ish about her whole affair with the president, and that's kind of the first real mention of the racial component, you know? And Shonda wrote that a number of times and didn't put it in until very late in the season. And then by last season, you know, uh, Olivia's father is giving a speech to her about how she always, you know, she has to try twice as hard, which is was clearly understood by everybody as very specifically about um, the black experience. So I think that she's become, even though she would disavow this, <laughs> I think she's become more interested in sort of addressing these questions extremely directly. But the thing about her characters that's sort of unique, I think, is just that they're so brash and ballsy and larger than life. I mean, they're not like really realistic characters. None of them are. And it's so unapologetic. Like that's sort of also what was in, that's what was sort of the seeds that were in Grey's and the early scandals. Like Sean Rimes is not that caught up in what you think a black woman is supposed to do or what any woman is supposed mm. to do. Mm-hmm. And she sort of makes these huge, zany people. Um, right. It's like how to get away with being a melodramatic monologuist. Right. It's like what is actually her project. And then you watch these shows in which people speak in just insane hyperbole all the time and they're forever like gulping down huge glasses of wine and then pontificating about just how pinned they feel and the circumstances of their lives, you know, in, in this way that's heightened. It's just so heightened and so removed from any actual human experience. And I think some of the the tensions, the romantic yearning, the work stress, whatever, are things that viewers of all races can relate to and um, then see reflected back to them in this magnified way. But there's many, many emotions that get addressed right. in monologue, and, not and just weirdly, anger. And or sort of interestingly, sort of really contra the Alessandra Stanley piece, what's been most remarkable about all of those characters and their sort of huge emotions is I think how 
little pause they've given people, like, instead of having the response like, oh, this is an angry black woman or this is a really indomitable black woman or this is someone who seems like, you know, it's scary. It's been everyone is just sort of on board and that actually I don't think that tons of audience members are sort of thinking about these characters in that terms of that archetype. They're sort of thinking about them mm. in, mm-hmm. in the landscape of the rest well, of the Well, right. And because within the landscape of Scandal, Olivia Pope, the character that Carrie Washington plays, is unique for her hyper-competence. Like, the rest of the characters in the show... Need her help. They need her all the time. When she walks into the room, they're like, oh, thank God Olivia's here. <laughs> you know, so it's the hyper-competence that stands out. But the rest of her emotional pitch doesn't stand out because everyone else is, like, twanging at the same mm-hmm. high resonant register with everything that happens in their life. So... Sometimes she's angry, sometimes she's sad, sometimes she's resigned, sometimes she's bereft, but she does it this heightened way that's just the same as, you know, the the kind of conniving chief of staff character or her zany redheaded sidekick character or, you know, her super spy lover character. Like, they all have these kind of fever pitch emotional moments that seem to have more to do, to me, with how you make a network drama work right now when they're, you're competing against these sort of heightened cable dramas than anything about a particular racial experience or or any of the stuff that was touched on in Stanley's piece. And that goes for the characters on Grey's as well. And I assume it will go for the characters on How to Get Away with Murder, which is just... The, the women that she singled out are not no angrier than anybody else. And it's also not quite what they are. If you were going to pick words... Right. Mm. Right. And, you know, if you look at the character of the president's wife on the show, actually, she also is frequently angry. She's, she's an ang- way angrier than Livy all the time. She's an angry white lady. And, <laughs> angry and- white lady. <laughs> swilling her whiskey. Um, I mean, I the love thing- it. Oh, go ahead, oh, Steve. So, oh, I was just going to say, um, uh, how to put it, a few years ago when the movie The Help came out based on the huge best-selling novel, we went and saw it for the Gap Fest, and I, speaking only for myself, was kind of gobsmacked by its pretense thinking that racial narratives still involve the martyred sympathies of white people as opposed to like we've evolved a little bit beyond roots in the 1970s and i mean obviously roots is based on a novel by an african-american but we've moved on culturally from the con like race being about the conscience of white people and are we in a new moment where well i mean there is as you just mentioned the help and like the blind side and Reese Witherspoon has a movie coming out where she's about it's to unkillable. Help. <laughs> I agree, <laughs> so it's no, right. I agree. It's it's unkillable, and and it stems from it, it's not a dishonorable tradition, but it's not an uncomplicated one of Uncle Tom's Cabin provoking the Civil War, of To Kill a Mockingbird in some ways provoking the the Civil Rights Movement, uh, or at least awakening the conscience of uh, conscience otherwise conscience asleep uh, white people in America. There's no simple trajectory of that tradition into the present tense. Now, simply because, you know, we're finally approaching a moment where someone like Ms. Rhymes can be a hugely powerful player and speak for herself, uh, you know, in Hollywood, it, it seemed that the particular sin, if that's the right word, that Alessandra Stanley committed was forcing really outmoded racial concepts onto something that had just mutated so far beyond them. Is that, is that what went on here? I mean, I think that is certainly part of what went on here. I mean, so that is certainly part of what went on here. I mean, the idea of the angry black woman felt even in the context of the piece like kind of an old fashioned way to be viewing it and therefore sort of offensive, like cramming it into this 
idea that is sort of unrelated to what Shonda Rhimes is actually doing. Right. It's like Shonda Rhimes also makes black female characters who are not mammy characters, but like we've, as a culture, <laughs> thankfully... The, We're not writing odes to her for doing that. Yeah. Like it's to, to make the assumption that that's still where we are or where her work might be. It felt like the piece was based on a set of cultural assumptions that were neither very sophisticated about the current racial moment we're living in, nor very sophisticated about the particular television achievements of Shonda Rhimes, and then was delivered with a sort of tone deafness about her, what it meant for a white critic like Alessandra Stanley to throw around terms like angry black woman without having a really carefully thought through understanding of both of those things. Totally. I do think that there is, you know, the fervor with which that piece was responded to on Twitter by, you know, lots of critics, by lots of fans, by the entire cast of Scandal, you know, does speak to obviously how hard it is to sort of talk about race if you're, especially if you're saying not that thoughtful things. You know, there is some version, the Alexander Stanley piece to me, I think there is a version of a conversation, like of a piece sort of on the ideas that she's talking about that would actually be really interesting because Shonda Rhimes is doing something unique with African-American female characters, if only, you know, that she's sort of given them this huge platform that they sort of didn't have and that she has that no one has really had before. But the piece itself was so not as fleshed out and not as enmeshed in the ideas and the stereotypes and the history that, that needed to be to sort of explain itself. All right. Well, Willa, uh, it, excellent to have you back on the show. A terrific rejoinder that you wrote. Can I ask you to stick around? We're, you probably haven't noticed, but we're missing Dana today for the show. I haven't noticed. How could one miss it? I've noticed. I know. That was a, an attempted humor. But maybe you would stick around and, um, and endorse in her stead. Absolutely. Willa, why don't we just dive right in and start with you? Willa, what do you have? Sure. So I wanted to endorse um, this third book in Elena Ferrante's trilogy um, that's called My Brilliant Friend is the name of the three sort of, that's how we refer to them here. And the third book is called Those Who Leave and Those Who Stay. And it's this, um, I actually think it's, having finished the third book, I'm fairly certain it is going to be larger than a trilogy. Um, I think that's actually been confirmed in Italy. But um, it's about these two uh, women who um, it sort of traces their entire friendship from the time that they're very little girls in Naples in the 1950s through right now. They're sort of in their 30s. They have children um, and they have these really opposing sort of trajectories. They're, they both grew up in this really impoverished. They live in this impoverished, corrupt um, Naples. And one of them sort of gets out. She you know, works really hard at school and she basically ends up being um, a novelist and sort of living in Florence. Uh, and the other one who she is always imagined as the bright one, um, you know, doesn't get to finish school and, and gets married when she's 19 and gets divorced. It's, it's, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of plot, but it's really um, they're amazing. They're so evocative and simple and and like not at all fun but so unputdownable. Like, it's not light. It's not like beach reading, but you just really get so invested in them and their relationship. Um, and the prose is sort of so simple, but, like, beguiling. And I find them really heavy and, like, literary while also being kind of, you know, maybe not delightful, but, but sus- sustaining. So I'm glad that you endorsed these books, Willa, because we actually did a Slate Plus segment a couple like weeks ago, I think, where Hagland, David Hagland, our Brabby editor, previewed his favorite culture picks for fall and one of them was the newest Elena Ferrante and he mentioned that he he was really keeping an eye out for it because of how avidly you um, <laughs> were hungering after a copy of the latest one which he always takes as a good sign when a critic is like just give me the fix 
Um, and I literally just last night bullied my book group into reading the first one for our next book. So I'm uh, right. about to climb aboard the Atlanta Ferrante train happily. Do it. Choo-choo. <laughs> Am I right in thinking this is um, it has a Canals Guardian it's kind of in that universe of it's very close first person that's true and and detailed but it is it has much more of um plot i, I mean it's not that it's a super plot heavy book because mm-hmm. um it's sort of just tracing their lives but it's more it's much more edited like narrowed in its focus mm-hmm. on their relationship and each other oh cool that sounds amazing um julia what do you have i would like to endorse a new app that I've been using called City Mapper. So even though I've lived in New York for almost 15 years now, I still like to use mapping tools to figure out the best way to go places. I don't know why. Like, I'll put my destination into Google Maps and see what the transit instructions are just to figure out if there's, like, some secret pathway I haven't been taking yet or is it really better to take the one train from this particular street corner to get where I'm going. Um, But Google Maps... The the iOS app version of Google Maps was redesigned several months ago, and it's totally – it's much worse than it used to be for ineffable user interface reasons that I can't quite put my fingers on. Uh, and someone recommended to me this new app called City Mapper. I had also used to use HopStop, which is an, was another good city transit app, but I think it got bought by Google and absorbed into um, Google Maps. And so all of my favorite mapping apps disappeared. But City Mapper is pretty – good. It remembers all of your addresses so you don't have to keep typing them in. And the way it works with the bike share system in New York is really smart. It's just like a piece of user interface design that feels uh, refreshingly easy and beautiful to use and just matches your life. And so I recommend it. It's not available for all cities yet, but it's available for a number of big ones. And if you are a transit nerd like me who wants to map out all of your travels, you should give it a shot. Okay, well, I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna kind of piggyback on an endorsement I think I've made in the past and expand it. Um, but one of my favorite books, if not my favorite book about American politics, uh, was written by Gary Wills during Nixon's reelection campaign. Wills was a boots on the ground reporter. He had a lot of access, but he's also a man with a capacious historical imagination and deep learning. And he wrote a book about Nixon and. I'm not 100% sure exactly when he wrote it. I believe it was written actually before Nixon's re-election in 72. So it was in between 68 and 72. But the the thesis of the book is that something has really changed about the country and its collective nervous breakdown in the 60s makes it ripe for Nixon arriving in the White House in 68, which to people who had followed Nixon's career in California as vice president, the checkers speech, on and on. This was a hugely improbable uh, election. And the book is called Nixon Agonistes. And he has a genius for diagnosing what it is about the state of the soul of the culture that makes it ready for a particularly, for a particular transformative politician. And he then wrote a book about later, uh, 20 years later, nearly 20 years later, about Reagan, I believe somewhere in the second term of, it was in the second, Reagan's second term. So Reagan had been reelected in 84, was now a, widely regarded as a triumphant uh, president and a somewhat transformative, definitely transformative figure in, in American politics. And so Wills wrote a very similar book about, well, why? What was the country going through that made it ready for Reagan and ready for the transformation that he represented? It's called Reagan's America, Innocence at Home, which is a play on the Mark Twain book, Innocence Abroad. Um, and I've always started it wanting it to be as trenchant and and just 
brilliant, really, as the as the Nixon book, and never finding it that. And I, I finally stuck with it because I'm trying to write about Reagan for my book, uh, really, as an, a, a, a counterintuitively, as an ancillary figure to the 80s. And it turns out that as the book gets going, it's every bit as brilliant in its diagnosis uh, as the Nixon book. And it just gets at what it was about the country at that moment needed this figure whose notion of experience was entirely funneled through anecdote and vignette and nostalgia. And it turns out it's just a brilliant, it's like, it's so brilliant. It makes you want to quietly put down your own pen and never pick it up again. But it is really, it is, it is an extraordinary piece of writing. And for those who care to revisit that era before running out and purchasing at full price, my book, which will be available sometimes in sometime in 2022, uh, you know, this is your stopgap, uh, uh, before uh, before my book uh, comes out, but it's a, it's called Innocence, at Reagan's America by Gary Wills is a brilliant book. Uh, check it out. That's so interesting. I I would say my main takeaway from that endorsement is that I've always pronounced the title of yeah, that first book. Made is, is Nixon agonists, so it's like a Greek thing, agonistes. Uh, yes. All right. Right. So it's from. I mean, I, I'm sure it's from something before this, but there's a Milton poem. It's a play on, I believe, the Milton poem. Uh, is it Samson Agonistes? Uh, let me, I got a sound. Jo- Josephine is giving you an avid nod. I, I just like the, she's like the mime fact checker. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, which is uh, an incredible, it is Samson Agonistes, it's an incredible Milton poem. It makes much more sense for it to be Greek. I just always read it as like French. I don't know why in my head. My, I, my internal pronunciator is corrected. All right. Well, uh, now that we've nailed down that pronunciation, Julia, thank you so much. Thanks, Steve. Will, uh, as always, a total pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Our intern is Josephine Livingston. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers, and our Twitter feed is Slate Cult Fest. For Julia Turner, Seth Stevenson, Carl Wilson, and Willa Paskin, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you soon. Is it getting better? Or do you feel the same? Will it make it easier on you now? You got some to blame you said one love one life when it's one need in the night one love we get to share it leaves you baby